0: This is Albert Breer from the MMQB.com, and you're listening to Play Like a Chat.
1: From Joe Namath's Super Bowl guarantee. I got news for you, buddy. We're going to win the game, I guarantee it. To Ryan Fitzpatrick's contract holdout. Ryan Fitzpatrick, he has not shown up at camp. Where are we with Fitz versus the Jets? And everything in between. They froze. It appeared that Marino was going to try and stop the clock instead. He connected for the fourth time with Mark Ingram. And it is juggled and caught by Jumbo this is Play Like a Jet, your weekly look back at some of the best. New York Jets are the world champions. They have upset the Baltimore Colts and beat them handily here today. And worse. Vince Wilfork is going to throw Brandon Moore back into his quarterback. He's going to fumble the football. Mark Sanchez not expecting it. And it was the backside of Brandon Moore that knocked the ball out. Moments in New York Jets history. So get ready to hop in your DeLorean and take a trip back in time.
2: Are you telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean?
1: For an in-depth look at the most memorable games, seasons, players, and events in the history of gangrene. It's time to play like a jet.
0: Play like a jet? What does that mean?
1: With your hosts, Scott Mason and Big John Sparopoulos.
3: Welcome to Play Like a Jet, your weekly look back at the biggest moments in New York Jets history. My name is Scott Mason, alongside my tag team partner, six foot two, two hundred sixty-five pounds, and if he was still playing, he'd easily be the best pass blocker in twenty nineteen NFL free agency. Mister Big John Sparopoulos, what's going on, John?
4: Scotty, the best intro in the business. Appreciate it. I'm doing pretty well. Uh... Yeah, it looks like the big game's finally over. Uh, time time for the off season.
3: Yeah, the big game's over, all right, although the game didn't seem all that big to me. I know people are trying to spin it as some sort of defensive masterpiece, and I guess on some level that's true. But I need some points in my Super Bowl, John.
4: Scotty, I uh, hope you didn't bet the over.
3: Yeah, that was a sucker's bet, huh? I bet a lot of people won and lost money on that one. I wonder what the percentage of people were that bet on the under versus the over. I'd be curious to find that out. I'm going to have to talk to some people and see what I can dig up on that because, John, that was easily one of the least eventful offensive Super Bowls that I can ever remember. I'm trying to think back. Can you think of one that would have been less eventful?
4: Uh, Scotty, it's been a while. I mean, there was one It was, you know, I think it was relatively high scoring for one team when, uh, Tampa Bay beat up on Oakland, but, you know, that game was over quick. But, yes, yeah, Scotty, it's definitely been a while.
3: Even the Jets Super Bowl when they beat the Colts back in 1969 was slightly more high scoring. The final score was 16-7. So it wasn't that much better, but slightly. And again, remember, different era. That was 1969 before all the rules got changed and it became a passing league. So for this to happen in a passing league is beyond bizarre, at least to me anyway. Although one bright spot, John, was that Zoe Kravitz was in a Michelob commercial, so for as bad as the game was, it was nice to see her.
4: Yeah, Scotty, uh, she's uh, pretty easy on the eyes.
3: No question about it. Shocking, John, that when your mother is beautiful and your father's a good-looking guy, you end up becoming a good-looking person. What are the odds?
4: Yeah, it looks like she won the genetic lottery.
3: Certainly did. I'll tell you someone else who won the genetic lottery, but in a very different way as far as athletics goes. And that is our guest, Wesley Walker, who was on with us last week and will continue the series on his life and career this week. John, we got into some interesting things with him last week, including the fact that the Jets and no other NFL team knew that he was blind in one eye when he was drafted into the NFL with the 33rd overall pick. In the 1977 draft, I still can't believe that a player could be blind in one eye and make it to the NFL, and that the team that drafted him wouldn't know anything about it. Today, with the way the Combines are, they know literally everything that's ever happened in your life, so it's wild how different things were back then, right?
4: Yeah, it seems like a long, long time ago before things like social media, where they can pretty much track everything you've ever done nowadays.
3: And that is for damn sure. I'm sure Wesley and all the rest of the players that played back then are glad that social media wasn't prevalent back then. In fact, maybe that's one of the questions we can ask him this week. So, John, what do you say we go and talk to Wesley Walker for part two of this series on his life and career?
4: Ah, geez, Scotty, I'd love to, but uh, I'm on my way to do some free agent recruiting.
3: Free agent recruiting. What are you talking about?
4: Yeah, Scotty, it looks like um, Jamal Adams is... uh, asking me to do him a favor so it's not quote-unquote tampering by official New York Jets. So they're sending me out to go talk to a Mr. Cole Beasley.
3: That makes sense, although isn't there going to be some sort of conflict because of your friendship with Jerry Jones?
4: Scotty, uh, it's the price we have to pay to make the Jets great again.
3: <laughs> True. You got to do what you got to do. So Jamal's sending you out there. What's he sending a limo for you? All
4: uh, right. Scotty, it's actually a uh, different type of transportation that I've ever been on. Jamal is sending a helicopter. And since I'm in the DFW area, it should be a relatively short chopper ride to go meet Mr. Beasley.
3: Oh, sounds interesting. Let me know how it is. I've never been on a helicopter before myself, so I can't deny you doing it, especially when it's in the service of getting a good player for the Jets, a wide receiver that can really help Sam Darnold. So, John, you go ahead on behalf of Mr. Jamal Adams. Go meet with Cole Beasley. I'll go talk to Wesley Walker and we'll meet back here. How's that?
1: Yachty, as always, sounds like a plan. Talk to you soon. While sports can bring us so much joy, it can also bring us a lot of unwanted stress. And that stress can make it difficult to concentrate, relax, and get decent sleep. Sunday Scaries was launched in 2017 by two best friends and business partners, Bo Schmidt and Mike Sill.
3: Wesley, last week you talked about two of your coaches, Dan Henning and John Itzik, and I want to ask you a little bit about them, especially John Itzik, because. John Idzik's son would later return to the team as the general manager in 2013, had a bit of a disastrous tenure and was kind of run out of town, but I wanted to know if you had any interesting memories of John Idzik's father, John Sr., Dan Hennig as well, and if you had any memories of the younger Idzik who would later go on to be the general manager hanging around the team because that's a really interesting story and kind of a way that it came full circle that his father was a coach in the 70s and he ended up becoming the general manager many years later.
0: I know, and, and that's, I just know he the son went way back, and, and some guys I remember him being like a little ball boy, and I had a lot of respect for him even when he came to the Jets, and I felt bad for him because I know that he treated me with respect and only because of probably his father and, and being around and knowing us as we develop as youngsters and him being around the Jets as a youngster. But his dad was also the guy, like I said, Dan Henning, they could take a suggestion where coaches won't listen to their players. There's some coaches who are just one-dimensional, their way or no way, and John wasn't that. And I know his idea was to try to get another receiver with speed, and that's why they drafted Lamb Jones to do the same thing I did. But unfortunately, when Walt Michaels got fired, he got these other coaches in there. They didn't develop his confidence. And I tried to tell Lamb, I had a coach here who would say, uh, you're going to catch more passes, you're going to drop. Uh, they, they wouldn't just yank you out to take your confidence away. And But then Lamb Jones didn't work at his craft. You know, he lost a lot of confidence. And so it takes a coach, and I used to tell people all the time, if I'd been Lamb Jones's coach and if Richie Cotite would have been smart enough, he would have took him and worked with him and saw what I saw in him. And I, Lamb Jones was the best I've ever seen, a guy that can – run, the, the speed that he had, and I knew he could catch. He dropped some stuff because he never developed his talent. But I've seen him make these heck of a catches in, in practice. And if you can develop that and do it once, you can do it all the time. It just takes practice. He never got to that point. But as a coach, you have to see what's inside the player and what they can do and develop it. And that's what a coach is supposed to do. Unfortunately, I I don't care if it's on pro level, you don't get that. And that's what John Izzyk for me, uh, that's what um, uh, Dan Henning did for me, and they could take uh, 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 some advice or give you some input, which most coaches will not do that, which I think is a detriment to not only themselves and the team, but you should listen to your players. You should be able to help. And what gets me with all the coaches sometimes, you don't develop a relationship with a lot of the coaches, especially the head coaches, and you don't find out till, till after you're retired and you're going to have a personal relationship with them. Uh, but as a coach, sometimes they have this facade they put up where you want to be able to play for your coach. I know there's a separate uh, thing you need to have between player and coach, but I don't see why you cannot have a friendship uh, with your players, but yet you, you, you have an expectation of what you need to get out of your players And from the players, what you have to do for that coach. And you can still develop and have a friendship, but you better do your job at the same time, and you got to be accountable. And it should work both ways. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. But I can honestly say I had a good relationship with uh, John Isaac and I was disappointed the way it turned out for his son. But I know his son uh, respected me because of what I brought to the table and what they knew about me as a person uh, with the father. Unfortunately, things don't work out. And... I know that better than anybody. I don't care what you bring to the table. If you're not producing, you're out of dodge, and they could care less about you. You're either in the door, and you can be out the door just as quick, and that's just the business aspect of it, and that's what you have to know, and I don't hold anything back, and I try to tell the truth, but I remember coming back to my alma mater telling kids, it's not about the money. You've got to get what you need to get, but this is a business, and it will never change, and uh and people, it's what have you done for me lately? I'll run you out of dodge as quick as you got in. You know they love you when you're on, but they'll hate you when you when you're not on, and that's just the way it is. I just don't like to jump on the bandwagon off the bandwagon. The press does that, people do it, and it's shameful to, to watch that. I mean, I look at the Jets now; uh, uh, they they had them not winning the game, and then they. They're doing a lot better than they expected, and 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 now it's a whole different story. But it's you don't know, um, uh, and that's why I try to tell kids: you have to seize the moment. You have to take advantage. You don't know when you're going to get that opportunity again because of injury or or just things that just don't happen for you. You know, so you got to take advantage of for the time that you have.
3: And you did that your rookie year. You had a really strong season, but the team did not do well. It was the third year in a row that they finished with only three wins. So was this kind of like a mixed situation for you? You were happy to do well your rookie year, but disappointed that the team didn't do well?
0: Yes. Uh, I can honestly say it it reflected me. uh, As a rookie, I was one of them up and downs. I remember being nervous, dropping balls. And and thank God, like I said, I had a coach that said, you're going to catch more balls than you drop. I was off and on with that, you know, and I've had my share of drops or fumbling a ball. I finished, uh, and I'll never forget this, I have a lot of respect for Tony Dorsett. I finished second behind him for rookie of the year, but I I look at things where I, I wanted to be the rookie of the year, and it could have been a lot better, and that's being more productive, but it comes with it, so I'll take what I can get. I'm very thankful, and uh, for somebody that had a bum knee and blind, and uh, that was, <laughs> it wasn't was bad, but it, It could have been a lot better than that. And as far as I'm concerned, it was just a mediocre year, and it certainly wasn't a great year uh, record-wise, you know, winning three games. But I certainly wanted to do better than I accomplished, but I'm not going to complain because it could have been a lot worse, and, and it could have been a lot better. But that's just the game itself, and that's just life how life works.
3: We move along to your second season in the league, 1978. And, Wesley, I was kind of curious about this. This is the year that the schedule went from 14 games to 16 games. So, at the time, do you remember having any strong feelings about this, or were you just a young kid who was happy to be in the league?
0: Yeah, you don't even think about it because even when I first came, came to the league, I think we played like seven preseason games, and that's like a season in college already. <laughs> and I was like, "This, it's a lot, but you, this is just a job that you do. You don't even think about it, you know. Uh, but when you, you think about how hard it is to stay healthy and to have success, and, and I look back on my career, and, and sometimes I look now just what guys have to endure. I'm like, how did I even deal with this in training camp? But like we used sometimes, you know, I remember getting punished, and we had three-a-day practices. Now it's like a country club when you go out there. Today it's like, oh, I go there, and I, I go to the complex, and these guys have turf fields, grass fields, indoor bubble, they get food. Should we had to go half-dressed after meetings to go get a deli Saturday to come back for practice, you know. And then the the guys before my time will tell you even worse stories than that, working two jobs, you know. So everything becomes all relative and it gets better and better. But I just seized the moment for what we had and things could be better, but it always could be a lot worse. So I just appreciate the time that I did have and you know, and and I should only reflect now on the just the good times that we had and try not to reflect on the, the bad times because we certainly had a lot of bad times. I never liked losing, and I, not, I never liked being hurt. And, and unfortunately, I had a lot of the, both of those things. Well,
3: 1978 was not one of those seasons where you had a lot of losing and where you were hurt a lot. Fortunately... You had an excellent season and the team really rebounded going from three wins to eight. One guy that did get hurt, though, was Richard Todd. He was out a lot. And Matt Robinson ended up playing most of the season. And you two kind of developed a rapport. You mentioned Matt Robinson before. Do you remember that whole situation with Richard Todd? And did you feel like you were really building something with Matt Robinson there?
0: Yes, well, we and we—it's funny because when we there was—I remember Pat Ryan was there. We we had this young unit that came out, and we used to hang out every now and then. And and when you know when you're like low on the toe you hear with these young rookies, you don't expect to come in and play right away and and become one of the leaders. And all of a sudden, Pitcher Todd gets hurt. The hero, is Matt Robinson, comes on in here, and they called him the little gambler. But uh, he played at Georgia, you know, and they they had like a passing. Uh, school and so he had a little background but we just you had this rapport, and we just got on a little hot streak and I remember that was the one, the first time I went to the the Pro Bowl and I was the most valuable player and I just things just clicked and that was probably one of my if I had to pick one of the most memorable times and I forget that sometimes because they always ask me about games that you had you can think of certain games that you had but that year, certainly, 78 was a great one. I think I averaged over 24 yards per catch, and um, Matt comes in and does a heck of a job to fill in, and we just wanted to get better, and uh, I just wish it would have lasted longer, and that's why you have to seize the moment, and here it is, you know, uh, things happen, and, and that all changed with Matt Robinson and the team, too. You just don't know when you're going to get that opportunity, so you got to seize the moment as you did, and that year we... We did the best we can, and we we got we were very productive.
2: Hey guys, Greg Peterson here with the Baseball Betting Podcast. As we know, the MLB season is back in our lives. It's going to be a sixty-game sprint
3: Wesley, at the risk of embarrassing you here, I'm going to read off some of the games that you had that year and just to paint a picture for anybody who doesn't remember or wasn't around at the time, just how incredible you were in 1978 when you went to the Pro Bowl and were the team MVP. You opened the season with four catches for 108 yards and two touchdowns. You had a 47 and a 43 yarder from Richard Todd. In the victory Now this of course Was before Matt Robinson Came in But week 7 When Robinson Was playing quarterback Against the Colts He had 5 catches For 154 yards He had a touchdown Including a 77 yard pass From Matt Robinson Week 10 against Denver You had another huge game You ended up catching 4 passes For 133 yards And a touchdown Against the Dolphins again Who you really killed Over the course of your career And we're gonna Thankfully talk a lot About that Cause I always love to hear About good old number 8 eighty five beaten up on the Miami Dolphins, which you caught six passes for one hundred twenty six yards and a touchdown, including a thirty three yarder in the fourth quarter. Week fourteen against baltimore you caught only two passes but both of them were touchdowns including a 48 yarder in the second quarter and a 38 yarder in the third quarter that ended up putting the game away so you were becoming one of the best deep threats in the league while at the same time helping to elevate a jets team from three wins the year before to now eight wins in 1978 this had to be awesome right because now you're becoming a major success not just on an individual level, but you're helping the team reach broader success too.
0: It's definitely a credible feeling, and it's something that you don't expect and it's almost like a dream where or you have a goal and and you want to be at a certain level and When you talk about being m v p of the team and that you're being voted by your teammates, your peers, that's just a just a great, great feeling. And it just doesn't happen. And when it happened, I was like, I just, I, mean, I thank God. I was just to remember, you know, when they, when they, when I got voted the most valuable player, and you're, 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 you know, just one of the focal points. You're, you're the press are asking you all these questions, and you just can't describe it, and it just makes you want to cry, and it's a good feeling. And when you you, I, I remember when I broke the thousand yard mark. I mean, I can't believe this is happening. And you're doing it on the best stage of your career in your life. You know, I mean, I, I in high school I never lost a game. I thought that was the premier thing. And then in college, I'm thinking I want I want to reach some goals. And I remember I had a 289 yard game, and I wanted 300. But you you look <laughs> at those things like things that that don't happen very often. And certainly, you know, being the most valuable player, going to the Pro Bowl, uh, you know, having a 1,000-yard a career and certainly average over 24-7 uh, a catch. And I, and I pride myself in doing something with the football because I didn't get the ball like a lot of these receivers that would catch back then, 80, 90 balls, you know. And then now the standard is almost 100 balls. I never got that I thing. I thought – I think I caught – 60-something in my career that is a career high, you know. So I always had to do something with it. But I was able to turn that into success where you – that put you on the upper echelon of receivers. And it was like almost still like – you know you can do this, but it was still shocking at the same time. And it's like a dream because, you know, this doesn't happen. And then when it happens to you, you just say, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening to me. And, and just as the bad stuff happens, I remember getting surgery my senior year. I didn't think I was invisible, but this is not supposed to happen, you know. And, <laughs> and that's what I felt at that time. How is this happening? To this is too too good to be true. And I just really, really uh, was very proud, and I, I, and I really thank my parents who brought me into this world i and i and I'm sure they were really proud of me just to see the opportunity and, and and just where I had progressed from and i'm I'm telling you it was just no better feeling you know I don't know what this is it's just like scoring a touchdown every every time, but it's that feeling that you get of being successful and just reaching the pinnacle of a height where you, nobody's ever gone before and that you're able to reach. Unfortunately, you wish you could do that every year, and that's the unfortunate part but that's something I wish. And, I, and when people say, Do you miss football? If I did that every year, and I remember some of my teammates that played, uh, or guys that played uh, against, you know, winning multiple Super Bowls, and you look at New England, that's a good feeling to do that all the time. Maybe I would miss it a lot more, but I didn't have enough of those seasons, you know. And you want to think of the positive things, but I remember the negative things that, that came out of it. So I don't miss football, but if it was like that all the time, I, I would probably miss it a lot more. But I certainly cannot replace that year, uh, the feeling that you had. And I just remember sitting up in the front answering questions and, and you, 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 your pictures on the front page of the sports page, and you're just in awe, like, I can't believe this has happened to me. and How much better uh, can this get? And I just really had to thank God for the success, because I said I couldn't do it without Him giving me a disability. And I remember um, going back home when I was uh, visiting uh, after I, w- I came uh, uh, from the Pearl Bowl, and I came home to church, and I remember getting baptized, because I just wanted to thank God for what He's blessed me with. Uh, and, and I couldn't have done it without uh, my faith and uh, the ability, just my life, my parents, and... Uh, I just wanted to give back and and I will never forget that moment.
3: And that God-given talent was going to be on display in 1979. He started out the season very strong in week three against the lions. He had six catches for 177 yards, which was a new career high week five. Against the Dolphins, you got double teamed all game, but you still caught a 71-yard touchdown pass from Richard Todd with 2 minutes and 10 seconds to play, which proved to ice the game. And at this point, Walt Michaels, who is a bit of a character, comes out and says, you know, I told Wesley right after that, if you're only going to catch one pass, then that's the pass to catch. So before (laughs) we continue on in the 79 season... We're now in season three with Walt Michaels. What are you starting to think about him? Is this a guy that you really want to play for for a really long time? What were your thoughts on him at this point?
0: This is a funny one because, and this is when you talk about coaches and having a relationship, and, and Walt sometimes didn't come off being the brightest guy. <laughs> and I got to know him a lot better uh, and, and felt closer to him Uh, When he retired and I was retired, we would make these appearances or you you go to a game together and you're sitting there talking to him and you realize how sharp he really is. But as a coach, just like Joe Walton, the same thing where they they became head coaches, they become different people. And uh, sometimes people have to act a certain way or, or control things a different way. And I'll be honest with you, I never thought he was that bright. Uh, and he had a, um, a way about him that could be very gruff and you didn't know really where he was co- coming from, very quiet. But it wasn't until after he retired and when I'm retired where well, we can have a, a decent and have a conversation. I just had a recent conversation with Walton, uh, last week, uh, because a friend of mine said he'd probably love to hear from him. She said he had a heart surgery. And here's a guy that I didn't even end up on a good note with. And a lot of, uh, like Greg Buttle, uh hates uh, Joe Walton. I don't hate anyone, even though we didn't see eye to eye on a lot of different things. And I barely spoke to him right, my last year, and I was really disappointed with him. Uh, but you know, this stuff is part of the business, you know. So, but I got on the phone to call him and we can have a conversation just like it would, you know, it, it feels good just to talk to your old coach or whatever. But I wish we would have had that type of relationship as player coach. And that's the thing I don't understand about uh, coaches. And, and I even listen on the radio about Joe Girardi and how the, uh, the, team may want a certain personality and some some reporters think you have to have this guy that comes in who you don't have the guys dictate the players dictate you want a coach to come in it doesn't have to be that way it's a team it should be related where i want to go through a wall for my coach you know but I also want to be able to have a relationship with him unfortunately it doesn't work that everybody has their own philosophy the way they they see things but i i felt like uh uh you know um Coach Michael wasn't a player's coach all the time in certain situations. Joe Walton became that sort of guy where it, when he was a coordinator, you would run through a wall. I used to love his speeches, but when he became head coach, he tried to control everything with a detriment, and you got you didn't even want to hear his speeches anymore. And then they, It just went through one ear and out the other where you, it would just became redundant, and you didn't even believe a thing he ever said. But people changed. And there's a way that you can be, I think, as a player and a coach together where you both understand each other. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. And and when you go through this the first time and you have your certain opinions, and a lot of times coaches come in, they will have a predetermined idea of what you are all about without getting to know you, or they may hear from a trainer or somebody in the front office that don't even really know you. And a coach makes a big mistake. Instead of getting to know you, as a player yourself before you pass judgment or make judgment on a player. And and that's also a big problem. But we have to do that as players as well as the coaches, you know, getting to know each other and give people chances. And that's the only thing of, as far as I'm concerned with any coach, just having a communication factor where you're on the same page. And, and, and it becomes disrupted as a team when you're not on the same page. And that's what happens to us a lot.
3: 1979, Walt Michaels said that line to you. But he also had another line, and I thought this was worth sharing. Seahawks cornerback Cornell Webster blocked a punt by Chuck Ramsey that led Seattle to score in a 30-7 to Seahawks win. And afterwards, Michaels called Ramsey out in front of you guys, apparently saying, I can fart farther than you can kick.
0: <laughs> he he wouldn't mind saying anything he felt. and. That was just Walt Michaels. And it's funny you mentioned Chuck Ramsey. I just seen him about a month ago. at, our, or I guess it was uh, over the summer when we had our Legends weekend uh, during the, the summer. And he came in. And he's a good guy. He's got that accent. He can tell you funny stories. And he's probably one of our better punters. And he, he had his success. But he also had his uh, his off night too. And that's just the human nature. I remember... I had my um my my first kid and uh and oh, my first or second I think it was my first kid and um, you know you're up all night, and, and you're going to the hospital, and then you got to go fly to a game. And then I remember I forgot to wear a plant, but I ended up pulling my hamstring a little bit. And the coaches are looking at you like you did something wrong, and you're trying to blend everything together, and you got a lot of stuff going on. That's what the fans don't realize that goes on, and then it becomes a rift between you and the coach and everything else. But you have bad days and bad nights sometimes. You know that's just the long or short of it, but. With the success, you got to take the good, and with the bad, you got to take the bad, you know, and that's just all part of the business.
3: That particular season, Walt Michaels seemed to be kind of coming into his own because he took over. The team had gone three wins for the third straight year, but now back to back, eight win seasons. And it was a weird kind of dynamic because the year before, Richard Todd had gotten hurt, Matt Robinson replaced him. Now, Matt Robinson was going to be the starting quarterback. He gets hurt. And Richard Todd replaces him. So what was going through your mind at this time with this quarterback seesaw?
0: Well, with me, it didn't really much matter. But there was a big thing uh, with uh, with uh, Matt Robinson and how he got hurt. And there was something that happened. I don't even know to this day what has happened. And Walt Michaels got really pissed off at him because I guess he felt he was lied and he was out doing something he shouldn't have been doing. And, and Matt was this um, happy-go-lucky type person, and we all had a personality. We all did our thing, uh, but the bottom line, you can do your thing, You just like Joe Namath did his thing, but you got to produce, and when you don't produce, you get in trouble. But I forgot there were some things that went on, and, and I guess uh, I don't know if Matt lied about something or that had this injury and there was a problem, and they got into a big thing. But myself, I didn't care who was back there playing quarterback. You know, as a quarterback, you just have to be a leader and you have to produce. And with me, I didn't care who was back there throwing me the ball. Just throw the ball, you know. And I had no animosity whatsoever. Richard Todd and and Matt Robinson might have had. And I don't really know their relationship. I know they had different personalities. But it's just so hard uh, coming to New York. I remember Richard Todd when I first got here. Instead of being Richard Todd, I think he tried to be a Joe Namath following in his footsteps, you know. But everybody needs to take on their own personality, and and I think you, over the years, you, and when you get into situation, it's a live and learn type of situation, and they had to find to find their way. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, in this game, uh, you have to stay healthy, you have to do, produce, and you have to do the right things. And when coaches don't think you did the right things, or certain things that happen, there's a lot of things that I still don't know, like that Matt Robinson situation, what happened between him and Walt Michaels, and his injury. Uh, I remember uh, Mark Gasson getting in a fight or something in, in the city with certain things that happened. You hear these things. Everybody had something going on, but uh, I don't even know what happened between the management with Walt Michaels when they got rid of him because we came within a game of the Super Bowl. There's a lot of things that just don't you just don't know that went on, and I'm sure Walt Michaels could tell you some things that you don't know that were going on, and and, and certain players, too, and certain players had privy to certain information. But the bottom line, I still never knew the truth behind all of that. I just knew I had to do my end, take care of Wesley Walker to produce on my end. And that's the only thing I had to focus on. And I couldn't worry about other things that went on. Uh, other than, you know, if the players told you the truth, a lot of times you just wouldn't know the truth.
2: Hey guys, this is Greg Peterson, host of the podcast Hooping with Hoops. Despite the fact that college basketball is in the offseason, it's never too early to get a jump start on taking a look at these teams because there is now 357 of them for the upcoming 2020-2021 college basketball season. I'm going to give you guys a deep dive on every last one of them, keep up with all the transfers in college basketball, and so much more. You are able to subscribe to hooping Hoopin' with Hoops on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: This is the
0: Overtime Podcast Network.
3: Nobody knows the truth, but I can tell you that certainly, as you said, Walt Michaels believed Matt Robinson was hiding an injury from him, and so he refused to play Robinson the rest of the year. Unfortunately for you, you didn't play for a lot of the year because you got hurt, as you said. Injuries kind of would pile up throughout your career, and this was the first major one. It was Week 9 against Houston. You had a huge game, but... You ended up getting hit by Mike Renfelt, and here's what you yep. said at the time. You said maybe Renfelt yep. was trying to get me some payback because earlier in the game, I really hit him on a Kevin Long run. I dug my helmet into him. He was gasping for breath. Maybe I should have hit him harder so he couldn't have come back at me later in the game. I
0: had, I had up Mr to say for Renfelt. But I just remember on this crackback he wouldn't even look and I could have just crushed him and pumbled him. <laughs> and I wouldn't say and when he when he hit me I wouldn't say it was his fault. It's just that uh when I came down my my uh, my foot was planted in the turf and he hit me at the same time and I, and I had this one loose bad knee and and it got jarred and I and I had to wear a cast after that and knock me out. But I was, that was the game and I swear that was the week. When John Isaac and Dan Henning, I said I can read this certain situation, I'll remember. I'll never forget it. I said I can run any pattern we want to. I have an answer for it. So if you it, just give me a chance, and we'll just run an option on it. And they put it on the, the practice. And next thing I know, it was on a grain plane. And it was—I forgot what quarter was in part of the second quarter. I had over a hundred yards. I'm averaging that year 25-something, like in college. I'm like, I'm doing better than the, the previous year for the pro. But when I went the MVP year, and I'm I'm just on fire. And then I remember hitting my on a cramp. I mean, I could have just knocked the crap out of him and maybe put him out of the game, but I wouldn't take a cheap shot like that. And then I was just making a comment, maybe I should have done that. I wouldn't have gotten hurt. And then he hits me and then he knocks me out of the game and that's what I remember. But I would never do anything dirty to take a cheap shot. I still don't understand today these cheap shots. When you blatantly take a head shot or something, uh, uh, whether it's a receiver or, or running back in a defensive situation, to take a dead cheap shot. And even the defensive backs I'm playing against and Bobby Jackson, and even if we're up in the air, he's like, hey, we're taking the kill shot, you know? But I think that's very dirty, and it's uncalled for. You can hit a guy and be tough, and hit them in the right way, but you don't have to maim someplace where you, you're ruining somebody's career. And and you take a chance on hurting yourself and doing some severe damage. To that I do not understand.
3: Yeah, those cheap shots are way out of line. But I would imagine it was even worse when you were playing than what's going on these days because of the fact that the rules are different now, so there's more protections in place. Back then it was more of a Wild Wild West type of thing, right?
0: Yeah, I think of Jack Tatum when I think of that, you know?
3: <laughs> Conrad Dobler, <laughs> right? A lot of those guys.
0: Yeah, I kind of do a lot of them, but I watched guys before my time, like Ray Nishke. I was a big fan of him, and Dick Butters was watching some of them tough guys. We and this guy that played for the Eagles, Bill Burger. I used to hate coming over the middle. It lights you up, you know. <laughs> and, and my guys in practice, Bobby Jackson, Jerry Holmes, that's why I ended up in, uh, almost paralyzed in practice with Jerry Holmes. That's what led to my, uh, I, I didn't tell you before, I had neck surgery after my career in 2007. I got 14 screws and plate and cage put in my neck, you know? It's crazy. J-E-E-S-S-S-S-S-S-S.
3: There's part two of our discussion with Wesley Walker on his life and career, his 13 seasons in the NFL with the New York Jets, and another crazy story there from Wesley Walker about his time working with Dan Hennig and John Idzik, no, not John Idzik, the general manager, his father, John Idzik. But of course, that led to some stories about the son. And Wesley seemed to indicate that John Idzik, the son, was actually a really nice guy to him and all the players liked him. So Wesley was disappointed, as we all were, that it didn't work out for him when he came back to the organization many years later as a general manager. One thing that hopefully we won't be disappointed by, though, is the Jets' pursuit of top-notch free agents in the offseason. And to that end, Jamal Adams is already hard at work. He's been trying to recruit Le'Veon Bell, and now he sent John on a secret mission to go talk to Cole Beasley, the former Dallas Cowboys wide receiver who might make a handy weapon for young Sam Darnold. He was sending him via helicopter, so John was in a chopper going to visit Cole Beasley in the DFW area. John, are you back?
4: Yeah, Scotty, I'm back with some uh, not-so-promising news.
3: What happened?
4: Well, Scotty, as you know, I do live down here in the DFW area, and being in a helicopter, I wouldn't think I would have uh, been on a long flight, if you will, but uh, Mr. Adams had a nice spread in the uh, helicopter so I could get a snack, as always, and a uh, couple hours later, it looks like I was landing in California.
3: Wait a minute, why would it take several hours, and how did you end up in California?
4: Well, Scotty, uh, once, once we landed, I uh, was talking to the guy flying the chopper. I said, uh, I'm a little confused, uh, as always. I think we went a little too far. He goes, no, you're meeting with Mr. Beasley's right here in California. I had you down to meet with a Michael Beasley. <laughs>
3: oh, I took you to the wrong Beasley. How did that happen?
4: Scotty, it beats me. Uh, it, it's my fault I was snacking on some delicious Chick-fil-A. and Before I knew it, I should have said, hey, I think we went too far.
3: Can't blame you, John. Chick-fil-A just makes everything stop, and you don't pay attention to what's going on around you. That's how good Chick-fil-A is to eat. So unfortunately for you, you didn't get a chance to meet Cole Beasley. But is Jamal Adams going to reschedule a time for you two to link up?
4: it looks like we're going to try again as early
3: as uh, next week. Hmm, to be continued. I guess we'll talk about that next week. We'll also talk more next week to our guest, Wesley Walker, about his life and career as we get into part three of this series. And I know Bart Scott is really looking forward to that, aren't you, Bart? Can't wait! Thanks, Bart. Football season's over, so I'm kind of afraid of what your show is going to turn into on the radio. But I got my fingers crossed for you, buddy. Just watch a little more baseball this season. Watch some more NBA. Maybe things will go better for you. I can't guarantee it, but I'm just saying that's probably your best chance. That's going to do it for us this week. Before we go, just want to say thanks so much to our man, Alan Schechter, who's the producer of this show. And he's also the one that booked Wesley Walker for this series. So if it wasn't for him, you wouldn't be hearing any of this. You can catch his work over at EmpireWritesBack.com covering all things New York sports, including our Jets. So if you don't have it bookmarked, go ahead and do that right now. Check out Alan and his great work at EmpireWritesBack.com. Also, if you haven't subscribed yet to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast, please go ahead and do that. It makes things a lot easier for you, and it's obviously a lot better for us because then our feed is right there. And also, if you haven't left us a review on iTunes yet, please go ahead and do so. We really appreciate it. We're at about 80 ratings right now. We'd love to crack 100 sometime soon. The more positive ratings we get, the more visibility we have out there in the Jets podcast market and the better guests and better shows that we can keep bringing you on a daily basis here on the Play Like a Jet feed. So if you could go ahead and do that, we'd really appreciate it. Remember, it doesn't take a lot of time. It doesn't cost any money, but it helps us out a lot. So please, if you could, give us a five-star review. over on iTunes. With that said, my name is Scott Mason. My tag team partner is Big John Sparopolis. And, John, I believe you know there's only one way that we can end this show.
4: Scotty, that's right. A pleasure as always. And who knew there was more than one athlete with the last name of Beasley? Click. Break it
1: down. One, two, three. In the home of the Jets. Yahoo!